All right. Is everybody doing well? Yes. This morning? 45 degrees. Is that what it is? That's still nothing like that warm reception we had in Tennessee when we went out and met with Smed out there. What was that? Was it below zero? Was it nine? It was like nine degrees when we got into Nashville. Yeah, that was brutal. But, but the fellowship was warm. Uh, I got a, I got a, I came across a quote um, from, I think it was a guy named Plass who tracked it down from Martin Luther. It's on your stuff today. And by the way, if you don't have one of the paper clipped things like this, packing you're over on the table, you just you get in the habit of when you come in on Saturdays to stop at that little table, check your name off on the attendance and grab one of these. And uh, so look at that quote. This is from Luther and this is his own testimony of how he interacted with the Bible personally. He says, for a number of years I have now annually read through the Bible twice. Twice. Um, and he describes it this way. If the Bible were a large, mighty tree and all its words were little branches, I have tapped at all the branches, eager to know what was there and what it had to offer. First, I shake the whole tree that the ripest may fall. Then, I climb the tree and shake each limb and then each branch and then each twig and then I look under each leaf. That's a, an eagerness to be in God's Word and to see it and to understand the whole and to understand the minutia, uh, to not um, miss a thing. And as long as your heart is right in that, to want to know God in that process and not just do it to get info or good theology or prove somebody wrong or to make sure you're right. Um, that's what we want. We want a, a heart for God in His Word that wants the big picture of things, the tree, but then wants to make sure we understand every branch, every twig, and what's under every leaf. So, guys, I, I put that before you as an example of, of a godly man who made a massive... By the way, can't, you will not come across a man anywhere in church history who made an impact uh, for good in regards to the gospel who was not this kind of man. Okay? Every man who made an impact, um, no matter how big, how great, how wide, that God, and God controls that, the man who makes the biggest impact for the gospel is the man who, who is after the word of God like this. Uh, and who's after the God of the word um, like this. So, Anyway, let's strive to be men like that so that we know God, so that we love Him. And we're going to talk about loving Him today um, in Deuteronomy 6. So with that in mind, let's pray. And then we'll view the disciplines and we'll jump into God's Word, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for a new day. We thank You for um, this morning. Thank you for your mercy and your grace, your kindness, your loving kindness, your steadfast love, your faithfulness to your promises this morning. Thank you for um, 
starting a work in us by your grace and by the gospel, by the power of your spirit and with the word of God in our lives. Thank you for being faithful to complete it. We know that you will, and and God, you use all kinds of means to do that. You use fellowship with one another. You use iron, sharpening iron. You use trials, and um, you use blessing. Um, You do it when we are alone. You do it when we are together. God, you use any means possible and necessary to move us along in our towards completion in Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you would make me uh, more into a, the kind of man that accepts whatever means you bring to my life, um, trial, temptation, um, blessing, whatever, God. Um, the brother who comes and rebukes, pray that you would make me and make each one of us more receptive to those things recognizing that it is you who is at work in our lives to shape us more into the precious image of Jesus Christ. And one of your favorite means, your best means to move us along towards completion is your precious Bible. And I pray, God, for these men that they would persevere in reading through it in a year and um, that they would do it for the right reasons because of the new heart that you've given them that heart is given to them from you and it is full of love and that love must be nurtured and protected and um, built up and your word is there to do that Um, so God please work in their lives help them to be faithful to you Um, help them to be faithful to your word and be with us this morning open our hearts and our minds our eyes to see what your word says to us and may you um, just impress upon us more the change that we need and we ask it in Jesus name Amen Alright why don't you take your notebooks I want you to turn them over to the back of your on the back side where you've got the insert want to continually keep these before you because this is um, we never want you to graduate from these disciplines um, while you're at Grace Bible Church and I I think no matter where you are if you uh, serving the Lord no matter what church you're at that you'll want to never graduate from these too Um, but the whole big idea here of what we're after is to call out um, servant leaders within the church that's what we're doing. We're, we're calling you out, gathering you together, um, trying to unite you around these six biblical disciplines and um, leadership disciplines, also that our church might be strengthened as it serves um, to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, how much better is it when all of your leadership is marching to the same step going in the same direction, trying to accomplish the same thing. That's what we're after. So that means we need to start with the first discipline, which is our own hearts. We're going to be disciplined with our hearts. We're going to shepherd them. We're going to shepherd our hearts to God's Word so that God's Word can inform our hearts, transform our hearts, fill our hearts. Um, And we're coming to the Word of God because we don't, again, don't want to just be right 
or have right theology alone. We do want that, but that is not first and most why we come, because what is right theology if your heart does not love God? Um, you must come to the Word of God to meet with the God that you love. You must. If you leapfrog that, there's big problems. Uh, and this is the big, this is what you and I, this is the, the main problem. We're going to talk about this today from Deuteronomy 6. Our first problem is, is not so much that we don't obey rules, that's true, but we, we don't love God. And we must nurture that heart and that love for Him. Uh, when we do that, discipline too, then means that we will be focusing on the household. A leader will place a priority on spiritually influencing his household with his heart for Jesus Christ. So you love Christ, you love Him, and you step into your household. You don't leapfrog your household. It doesn't matter if you're not married if you have roommates, um, or even if you're living alone, you're seeking to have there be the spiritual aroma in the place where you live so that when people come into it, they can recognize that there's something about this man. And I can tell you what it is. It has something to do with this man loves God, and his word is influencing the way things are just done in this house. I'm not talking about having a nice quaint verse on your wall in your kitchen. Do that too. That's mm-hmm. great. We're talking about there's, there's something about you and the kind of man you are, and it makes an impact on your household. And then you're focusing on discipline three, that you, with a heart for Jesus Christ, with your household following your lead or being influenced by your leadership, you step into the church, you step into the lives of, of those around you, and you bring the gospel to them. Um, to, you shepherd them towards Christ. Discipline four... What we want to keep in front of you, what um, you want to keep in front of yourself are the, the, dis, uh, the leadership qualifications for a deacon and an elder. We want you to aspire to those. and um, We haven't gotten to those very much yet, but we're going to get to them. Um, if you look in your schedule, you'll see when we're going to get to Discipline 4. But, and then Discipline 5 is just kind of a catch-all category where we're uh, just saying at any time we need to, we're going to grab a hold of a biblical issue or a practical issue challenge or issue in the church or a theological issue and we're going to deal with it um, uh, so that we understand it better so that we can take an, um, advantage of the opportunities and the challenges before us. In the past when we have had strife in our church um, um, or with our church and another church that was a threat and it was an opportunity all rolled up into one and if something like that comes to us we'll, we'll tackle it and we'll grab a hold of it and we'll figure out what's the best way for us to understand this opportunity or this threat according to God's word. And we will, as leaders, be united in how we're going to go after it. Discipline six, then, is just uniquely the vision for our church, that we want to be God-glorifying, cross-centered, and life-transforming, focusing on those things because that's what the gospel is about. It, it centers all of the glory of God on the cross of Jesus, that unique um, sacrifice for us. Um, and that sacrifice transforms life. It saves people. It changes us. And then it doesn't lead us to just be static and not do anything. We actually find ourselves very active in the gospel. We draw in, we build up, and we send out. Um, and we'll spend some more time on that as well in the, uh, in the future build. So there's your disciplines. Guys, that needs to be a mantra that when you wake up, you can, it just comes out. The heart, my home, people. Qualification. I need to be. I want to be a qualified man. This church needs you to be a qualified man. The sake of the gospel needs you to be a qualified 
man. Um, so be striving towards these things. And we don't expect them because we don't know. God's not going to have all of you be deacons. God's not going to have all of you become elders. But um, there's nothing wrong with striving towards these. In fact, you're going to... You noticed that, didn't you? That is a very... We'll give it a shot and see if this one sits down. Thank you very much, Dave. I appreciate that. Um, so we'll trust God with who he's going to raise up as, as deacons and elders, but we want to push all of you towards that, and we want to be participating with God in what he does. So, there you have it. All right, this morning, we are going to, I think in every build so far, uh, that we've had, we have been all over our Bibles, turning all over the place. Uh, this morning, we're going to do just a little bit of that, but we're mostly going to be in one passage. So I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 6, verse 1. And we're just going to spend a, a, a good chunk of time here in Deuteronomy 6. And then you can also take out your uh, pages <coughs> that have a bunch of quotes in it. And I've tried to leave you some space there as well so that you can take notes if you want as you, um, as you go along. And again, as always, uh, as Ann said, the jungle rules. Jungle rules. That means you can get up and get whatever you need. You can use the bathroom, down the hall, whatever. And um, feel free to ask questions or ask for clarification, make a comment, um, whatever. You can do that. All right? So uh, let's take a look at our passage. First, just to, I gave you just a couple things there to help summarize the book of Deuteronomy because they're going to kind of parachute into chapter 6. Summarizing the book, God appears in the book of Deuteronomy in a strong covenantal setting. He has made his covenant with Israel, and he is the great king. He is the Lord of the covenant. The Mosaic covenant portrays God as the great king who entered into a treaty or a covenant with Israel so that he became their God and they became his people. And as we've been in Leviticus, we've been talking about that in regards to holiness. Um, and how it is important for Israel to be holy before him. You see an outline of the book that I've given to you. This is just suggested to you as it it focuses on that covenant theme. And you'll see that uh, chapter 6 actually falls in that third section there of the covenant life that falls between chapter 5 and chapter 26. So Moses in Deuteronomy is reteaching, in a sense, the the law to Israel. And we're going to focus on this very crucial passage, fundamental passage uh, in all of scripture. So let's read verses 1 to 9. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land into which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children 
and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We are this morning going to focus predominantly on verses 4 through 9. Uh, verses 1 to 3 are really an appeal from Moses. They're saying, guys, Israel, please, I, I, I plead with you. Pay attention to these commandments. And then he gets to what I call the blazing center, or the, the furnace, in a sense, of Israel. And it's verse 4. Um, Deuteronomy 6.4 is called the Shema. The Hebrew word for here. Um, so Moses, in a sense, is saying here, Israel, hear this. But the idea bound up in this word here is not just hearing only. We, we understand that you can hear, but not really hear, right? If any of you have kids, you know this. Well, you no, know, you just look at your own life and you know this. You can hear what somebody says to you, but there's no intent to really absorb it, engage with it, do it. It's just, yeah, 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 I hear you. Um, this is why when you got young ones, you work hard to say, now, did you hear me? Do you understand? Because you're much more interested in your child or the one who's listening to you that they actually act on what they have heard. And that's the idea here. You, Israel is to hear this with the intent to live under these words. Um, they are to hear this with the intent to order all the rest of their life around what he is saying here. So, the focus around this blazing center here in, in verse 4 is on Israel's covenant obligations. This is what they must live up to in light of who God is and what he has done among them. Um, verse 4 is one of the uh, strongest and shortest descriptions of God possible. The Lord, our God, the Lord, one. Just, I think it's like four words in Hebrew. <laughs> just it. It's one of the shortest, simplest, strongest descriptions of God. It's probably the most potent summary of God up so far up to this point so far in Scripture. Um, it's like Moses. How would you summarize everything you've seen about God at this point? Oh, the Lord, God. One. Um, this is an amazing thing. He's the blazing center of, of their life. Um, he's in the midst of them in a tabernacle. And um, what God is saying here, what Moses is saying to Israel is, as long as he's in the center of their life, there's warmth to come. There'll be love. Take him out. And they move back into cold idolatry again. Um, so I quote there from uh, the New American Commentary. To hear in Hebrew lexicography is tantamount to obey, especially in covenant context such as this. That is, to hear God without putting into effect the command is actually to not hear Him at all. You understand that? That's the idea. Um, so this, again, is to hear this, get this about what Moses is saying about God, listen to it closely for the purpose of obeying it. They must become determined, Israel must, 
to know what God has said in order to conform their lives to what is being said here about him. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to see how important this is in the New Testament as well. So turn to James chapter 1. Maybe you've already been thinking this in your mind. That, hey, this sounds like James chapter 1. Turn there. James chapter 1, verse 19. The New Testament and our regulations and our instruction under Christ is not interested in a hearing that does not act either. Um, Teaching of Christ is that you would hear it and that you would act on on what you hear. Verse 19 of chapter 1. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak, slow to anger, just a little teachability first and most. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. In other words, sin will be an obstruction to you receiving God's word. So that sin needs to be put away by the power of grace in your life and the gospel. And that implanted word is able to save your souls. Verse 22, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So if you're a hearer only... There's a real problem here, and it's a terrifying, um, it's a terrifying uh, description. To be a person who hears the word of Christ only, but to not act on it, is actually a deceived person. Okay, so you don't want to be that kind of person. You want to be the kind of person that actually acts on what you hear. If anyone is a hearer of the word, verse 23, and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself, he goes away, and at once he forgets what he's like. But the one who looks intent or looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And he goes on to talk about what that fleshes out to be in pure religion. So you can see that Christ's concern is that we would be hearers who act on um, his word as well. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, you'll... you'll <clears throat> If you've got um, a different version than me, I'm reading ESV, you might, verse 4 might be uh, sound a little different. There's basically two kinds of translations or two different directions to go in translation. Um, basically, the NAS, the NIV, and the ESV kind of go the same way. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Um, New King James Version and some others go with the Lord our God is one Lord. Um, and what they're trying to do here is stress the two things that are bound up in this verse. Um, the two things that are being stressed here by this just simple statement is that God is unique. He is exclusive. There is no other God like this God. So some of the translations try to focus on exclusivity of God, the uniqueness of God. But there's also unity or wholeness or oneness that is being stressed here and so some of the translations focus on that and the point is it's not either or the point is you need to keep both of those ideas bound up together Um, Macintosh has a a great quote on this all the grammatical possibilities point in the same direction to the uniqueness and supremacy of Yahweh God of Israel the unity of God is stressed God's distance from the invented deities of the nations is stressed. Israel's strength lying not only in the worship of Yahweh, but in the exclusive worship of Him is being stressed. So, its uniqueness and its unity bound up. Now, I want you to think about this with me. And why this is so important at this point. Where is Israel at this point? 
they're, they're in the wilderness. They're, uh, they've received the law. They've moved out. They're wandering through. they come towards the end of their 40 years. Uh, and they're about to head into the promised land. Now think what's behind them. Where have they been? Prior to this, for 430 years, they had been in idolatrous Egypt. They were in the belly of a nation that was full of idols. And write down again Ezekiel 20. And I I think this is so important because it's God's own commentary on what he found when he went into Egypt to get Israel. They were full of idolatry. They were worshipping the gods of Egypt when they were there. I think our impression sometimes, I'll be honest with you, I won't speak for you, I'll speak for me. My impression has been at times when I read through this that, oh, poor Israel, they were holy and they were innocent and they were worshiping the one true God in this really difficult place and that is why God came to rescue them because they deserved it. And that is not the case at all. Yes, there are all kinds of promises that God made to Israel, to Abraham, that you will be a unique family nation and I will do with you what is uncommon and I will pour out my salvation blessing on the nations through you and I'm going to do it to, uh, through you on a prime piece of real estate um, called Canaan. And you get to Exodus or the end of Genesis, the beginning of Exodus, and they're not anywhere near this. And it's not because God's word failed. It's because they failed. And they had grown to be this huge nation in Egypt, but they are full of idolatry. And so God comes in His holiness, in His uniqueness, in His exclusivity, and He grabs them and He drags them out through the Red Sea to the base of the mountain, and He says, you, Israel, and me, we are in a covenant relationship. We have a treaty together. I am your God, and you are my people. Now, you need to live this way. Here's my law. Okay? That's what's behind them. This is kind of where they're at. Now, where are they headed? They're about to go into one of the most idolatrous places anywhere. There are the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Perizzites. All the Itites people are there, and they all worship different gods. And so here they have this. The bookends of the past is idolatry. The future bookend is idolatry everywhere. And what is he saying to them? The Lord, your God, won. There's only one. There is no other God. This is absolutely crucial for this nation to get this because this is a part of what God is going to do to bring salvation to the, to the nations through them. No God had been like this. He's unique. He's exclusive. No God had ever come into an idolatrous nation to separate out another idolatrous nation within that host nation and perform so many judgment miracles and Blessings and no God. There is no God like this. This is the only God. Now, notice something. Go to the next book to the right. Go to Joshua, the last chapter of Joshua, Joshua 24. And I want you to see this is after they've come into the land. They've made it there, and Joshua is giving them some final instructions before he dies. Look at Joshua 24, verse 14. Now, let's see. How they do? We gave the bookends of the past, idolatry everywhere. They were idolatrous people. We've given the, the future bookend. They're going into a nation full of idolatry, and there's lots of. Uh, and we got the, the, the instruction right here that there's just one God. Now watch what Joshua says about them, verse 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Command. 
Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Did Israel just had a horrible time with idolatry. The, the gods beyond the river, you know who that is? You know that's a reference to. Abraham's gods, Abram's gods, before God came and got them in order of the Chaldeans and pulled them out. They're still worshiping those gods. Drop down to verse 23. If you back up a little bit, he basically challenges them. You serve the Lord. And they say, and, and Joshua keeps saying, you're not, you're not able to do this. And they keep saying, oh no, we are. We can do this. Verse 21. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said, and you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord to serve Him. And they said, fine, we're witnesses. We, there's no problem here. And he says again, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord. Not just any God, the God of Israel. So, I mean, this is crucial for them to get back in Deuteronomy chapter 6. All right, now, again, I call this the blazing center or the furnace. Now, I don't know if you noticed this. Uh, you're about to maybe notice this in your house uh, as the temperatures get cold and you start to actually have to turn the furnace on. You'll notice that the house or the room, not the house, the room that is closest to where the furnace is, the vents, that room is what? It's, it's too hot. It's the hottest. Why is that? Because the air coming out of the, the air that immediately comes out of the furnace is what? It's the hottest. Right? And it's the same as the case here in Deuteronomy 6. If, if, if this statement about who God is, the kind of God He is, is the furnace, what comes out after this is full of heat. And look at verse 5. This is the heart. You shall love. There needs to be heat. that, Based on who God is to Israel, Israel, you need to be in heated love for me. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So we're talking about discipline one here, the heart. The first thing on the mind of this one-of-a-kind, united and oneness God is this. Love me. That's pretty unique. The gods of the Egyptians didn't ever think of this to say. The gods of the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Philistines, the Hittites never communicated such a thing. In fact, there's been no ruler, I don't even think, in present day who has said this. Did anybody hear either of the presidential candidates talk about that they wanted us to love them? I don't remember hearing that. Um... Matthew Henry has a great quote. Did ever any prince make a law that his subject should love him? Yet such is the condescension of the divine grace that this is made the first and great commandment of God's law, that we love him, and that we perform all other parts of our duty to him from a principle of love. It's a great statement. So what is it meant here when... when it says in verse <clears throat> 5 that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. What is meant by, by those three terms? Anybody have an idea? What, what is he after? Or if you want to answer it another way, you can answer it, what is he not saying when he says it this way? 
And if that's confusing to you, just go with the first part of the question. <coughs> what is he saying when he says, with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength? Anybody? Every, everything that we are. Everything that we are. Good. What else? What do you think? What's on his mind? <coughs> that we have nothing else that, that, that our hearts are fixed on. Good. Yeah. Is Moses asking Israel to go on a splicing analysis of them, of themselves? Um, go over here, find where your heart is over here, and make sure that all of it loves you. And then I want you to go over here and find your soul and make sure that all of it loves God. And then go over here and find where all of your strength is and make sure that all of it loves the Lord. And then, you know, make sure all of these plates keep spinning. You know? Is that what he's saying? No, that's what he's not saying. He's not sending man on a splicing analysis. He's actually doing what I think Mike used at the beginning is. He's, he's gathering up all of what man is into one heap, and he's using a list to do that, and he's not saying three different things. He's saying one thing. Everything about you loves God. Everything about you. Because if you get the heart of man, that's the command central. That's your will, that's where your desires, your affections are all birthed and nourished and advanced. If you get the heart of man, you get all of the man. If you get the soul of man, you get the life. You get his being. If you get a man's strength, you get not just physical strength. Macintosh has a quote. Strength is not so much a person's physical power as it is his intensity. Um, God wants earnestness in a person's love. He desires not merely that we possess a faith, but that our faith should possess us and move us. Um, now, I just want to ask you a question at this point. What, is, what has been your impression of Mosaic Law? When you think of, as a Christian, just looking back at Mosaic Law, has, does, does love for God come out in one of the first things in your mind when you think about Mosaic Law? Oh, when I think of Mosaic Law, I think about loving God. Israel is supposed to love God. Now, I, I tell you what, when I think about Mosaic Law, I, think I have a whole lot of other questions but not the thought of love. What was God's intent when Israel thought of his law? When he thought of the covenant, the Mosaic covenant. It was, this is about love. Israel, this is about love. God's people, Israel, they were not guilty before him first and most because they broke dietary laws and they broke social laws and they broke sacrificial laws or they even broke the Ten Commandments. That's not what they were guilty of first and most. What they were guilty of first and most is they did not love God with an all-consuming love. And because they did not love God, therefore they didn't care if it was a dietary law or a sacrificial law or a civil law, or even if you get grant those so-called categories, which I don't, but if you want to splice it up that way, that's why they didn't obey those categories. It's because they didn't love. They didn't love God. I think one of the Maybe a, an illustration today that we could draw on that might help us understand this idea of love and duty and a covenant setting is, is actually a, a wedding ceremony. Um, I did my first uh, um, renewing of vows last night. Really? Another couple. It was really fun. Um, they've been married 25 years and they wanted to uh, re- renew their vows and so uh, we did that last night. It was really cool. And when 
when uh, a woman hears um, a pastor say to her, will you? Blah, 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 blah. Will you? Blah, 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 blah. Will you? Will you? Will you? That could sound like a list of lots of do's and don'ts. But does she hear them that way? When she's standing there looking at her man. She doesn't hear him that way at all. She hears that as, because love is everywhere in this covenant relationship that is going on. So she doesn't hear him as commands. And she answers, I will, to every single one of them. See, love is bound up in the commandments. That's what God is after. Now, let's go to Christ. And let's move forward through our Bibles to John chapter 14. I want you to see what Jesus says concerning disciples, his followers. John 14, verse 21. We'll get to Matthew 22 soon. That's the direct quote, right, from Jesus on Deuteronomy 6. But I want you to see what Jesus taught his disciples the last night he was with them. He said in verse 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. In many ways, verse 21 is an awful lot like Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 5. And even verse 6, we'll get to that in a minute. Moses said to Israel, he said, these are the statutes, these are the commands, and I plead with you, do them. Do them. The Lord your God is one. Love him. And so you've got commandments and you've got love all put together. In verse 6 in Deuteronomy 6, you'll see in, in a minute here that those commandments were to be on their heart. And what Jesus says here in verse 21 is, if you have my commandments, Jesus says, my commandments, Jesus' commandments, and you keep them, you're the one who loves me. And he who loves me is loved by my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Now Judas, not Iscariot, what, how would you love? Would you love the rest of your life to be identified as Judas? Oh, not that Judas, but this Judas. You probably would. You probably wouldn't care. But um, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Um, Macintosh, his quote is, is helpful. Jesus would later insist, John 14, 21, what we just looked at, his disciples could hardly uh, would, have, would insist on the same thing. His disciples could hardly have missed the point of the statement in which Jesus insisted on the same devotion that Israel had been commanded to give Yahweh. That's huge, guys. Jesus is saying to his twelve men something that they would have gone away with. This sounds an awful like Deuteronomy six. So this command from God to love Him it reflects and it reveals something very important. Um, don't go back to Deuteronomy 6 because now we're going to spend some time in the New Testament but think on this what does that command reflect about God he says love me what does that reflect it reflects his desire that we respond to him in love and, and I, I looked um, do you know when the word love first appears at least in the NAS in um, the Bible you want to take a guess What do you think? Genesis. Genesis. You're right. It's in the book of Genesis. Where? It's not Jacob. No. That's said in Romans um, about it. 
Nope. Genesis chapter 22. It's the first time the word love... Now, that doesn't mean that God hasn't expressed love prior to that or that man didn't love God prior to that, but it's the first time the word love is used in Hebrew. And what's the setting? Abraham and Isaac going to the top of the mountain, and he says to him, Now I know that you love me. Love was on God's heart before Mosaic Law. Love is on God's heart in Mosaic Law. And love is on God's mind and heart in Christ for us. The law came into existence. Mosaic Law came into existence by God's design. And again, the point is that the law was to be a tool of expressing love for God. Um, And Christ picks up the same idea. Now, let's go to Matthew 22, verse 36. This is when Jesus uh, repeats and carries forward the same command from Mosaic Law. He picks it up and brings it into his (coughs) teaching. Matthew 26, verse 36. I'm sorry, 22. I don't know why I said 26. 22 verse 36 you know he's asked uh, what's the greatest commandment of the law in the law and he said that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and this is the great and firm first commandment and a second is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself now he, he then says that this principle of love this matter of love that is on God's heart, What he says next is very interesting. He he says that basically love is this bigger thing than the law and the prophets. He says because the law and the prophets are hinged on this. They hang on this. They depend on this. And so love is this comprehensive bigger thing than Mosaic Law. Mosaic Law was there as a servant to bring about love and to provoke love and to nurture love in the heart of the Israelite. And Jesus says his commands for us are the same thing. It's all about love, loving God. Um, Go to uh, John chapter 14 again. Watch what Jesus says in verse 30. And Do you have these verses down in your notes? No? Okay, make sure you write them down because these are are great um, passages to look at in regards to love. And they might be ones that are, are obscure to you that you wouldn't have thought to turn to. John 14. Verse 30, watch what Jesus says. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has no claim on me. Now watch this. But I do as the Father has commanded me. Oh, Jesus had commands too. Why did he do those commands? So that the world may know that I love the Father. You see, it's not any different from Jesus. Rise, let us go from here. Um, how about, you know Romans eight twenty eight. For those who love Him, right? All things work together for good for those who love Him. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Go to 1 Corinthians. Uh, Hang on one second. Don't go anywhere. I'll tell you, go to 1 Corinthians 16, and I'm going to go look at another one real quick. Write down also John 17, 26. Keep going to 1 Corinthians, and I'll read it to you. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. 
right? Here's um, John 17, 26. In his high priestly prayer, he says, I made known to them your name, Father, and I will continue to make it known. Why? So that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. He is all about his love being in them. John, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. Okay, the one who does not love Jesus, cursed. Whoa! He just made it very clear what the main point is of everything about God. It's about loving Jesus Christ, and if you don't love him, there's a curse on you. Wow. That's huge. How about Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24? Paul closes out his letter to Ephesians. He says, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. And what kind of love is it with which we love Him? It's with a love incorruptible. How about 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8? 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. So we not only, of course, if you love Christ, you are going to love when He comes. Where's that coming from, guys, right there? I'm sorry, that's brutal light coming through the... Anyway, feel free to move around if you need. Yeah. yeah. The glory of the Lord is upon you. Um, okay, maybe not. 2 Timothy 4.8. Um, how about Hebrews 6.10? Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name. Right? He's not unjust. He's not going to overlook um, your work and the love which you have shown for His name. Now, how did they show his, that they had love for His name? Through what? And in what? In serving the saints. It's a way to show love for God, which is why the two commandments are woven together, to love God and love your neighbor. How about James chapter 1, verse 12? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. 1 Peter 1, 8. Though you have not seen Him, you what? Love Him. You love Him. See, we are to be marked by love for God. You can write down 1 John 4, 20 to 21. 1 John 4, 20 to 21. And 1 John 5, 1 to 2. 1 John 5, 1 to 2. Now, turn back to John chapter 21. I love this. This is one of my favorite passages. John 21, verse 15. Here's the setting. Jesus has been raised from the dead, and Peter is probably at his lowest. Peter has seen the risen Lord. He's, Jesus has appeared to him. Jesus has met with the disciples. But Peter is still in the dumps. And he has basically said, you know, this discipleship thing, uh, being a sent one of Christ, I I think I'd be better if I went back to fishing. So he's going to go fishing. They finish breakfast. Jesus meets them on the shore. 
remember the whole story, he jumps out of the boat. Uh, he's stripped down for work, but he puts his clothes on and jumps in the water to swim to shore, to be with Jesus. And before he gets there, finds out that Jesus already has fish when they didn't catch anything all night. Um, and he says, put the net over on the other side. I'm telling the story all out of order, but I think you're with me. Um, he finally comes up, and this is a crucial moment. Peter denied Jesus how many times? Three times. This is a crucial moment. I want you to see what is on the heart of Jesus for this disciple who sinned. Verse 15. Simon, son of John, will you stop being so foolish? Are you going to stop being so foolish, Peter? Peter, will you promise to do better? Peter, will you resolve in your heart that you're not going to do this anymore? Do you? Pinky swear with me. <laughs> Peter, will, Peter, will you get some accountability? Because you need it, man. Will you get some accountability? What, is, what does Jesus say to Peter? What's on his mind? What does he want Peter to come to grips with after his fallen? What does he say? Do you love? Do you love? Do you love me? How many times does he say it? Three times. To restore Peter. To make a very clear statement to Peter. I saw every single one of your failings. And they were serious. In fact, on the surface, what he did doesn't look a whole lot different from what Judas did. Peter, do you love me? Listen, this is so important. When we put... If we were to put Romans 6 together with this, this is very important. When you fall into sin, guys, and when you are overcome by sin, there's one thing you need to do first and most. And that is you need to preach the grace realities of the gospel to yourself. Something to the effect of, by your grace, God, you united me to your son in his death, and you united me to your son in his resurrection. And you did that so that I might be powerfully freed from the tyranny of my sin, so that I would undoubtedly become a slave of obedience to you, a slave of righteousness, a slave of God. That's the grace reality. That has power because that is the gospel. That is what happened. You must proclaim that to your sin and over your sin and to yourself as you beat yourself under your sin and say, I'm going to go fishing. Because I'm not worth, I'm not worthy of this. I need to preach that to you. But, before you go from those grace realities to the deeds that grace will inevitably move you to, there's something in the middle there that we often play leapfrog over too. That this passage is calling us to not play leapfrog over it, but to go through. And that is, you must recognize that the gospel put love in your heart for God and you need to express it. I love you. Because that's what Jesus is trying to draw out of Peter. Peter. Do you see what it is 
that I have done in your life? Do you see what it is that you must have central in your life? And I think this is really, I find for myself, something that I, I can very easily neglect, is I can address my sin and what went wrong. I can even try to, uh, to preach the gospel to my sin and then recognize, okay, grace is, is abounds for me and uh, grace also abounds for me to be obedient to God, to live the righteous life that I've been called to do and the whole time think on all of that and not even recognize that really the core issue is, is I must love my Savior. I must love. I hope you hear me say that and you think, I, that is bizarre. I can't even imagine that. But I'm just being honest with you guys. I have had to work, and I don't know if you've noticed, I try not to do it for rote, but I try to, in my prayers, when I pray, specifically say, I love you, or if we're praying corporately, we love you. Because I recognize this about myself, that it's so easy for me to be concerned about what's wrong and what needs to become right. And yes, now I'm even trying to apply the gospel more so to that in a way that's, that's honoring to Christ. But it's still easy for me to forget love. Do you see this, guys? I mean, love is at the center of it all. And if you and I are men who interact with the Word of God and we're sharp with one another, and boy, we're, we've got... We have technique, we have skill, we have sharpness about what we do. That is nothing without love for Christ. Nothing. Which is why discipline one is so important. Love Him with all of your heart. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6. Alright, so there's the furnace, right? Verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord one. And we discover from that that God has provided um, a means by which from that furnace they might have a comprehensive love for Him. Uh, that they are to have love for Him. Um, that's the, the hot air that blows out of that furnace first and most. And then what we're about to find out is God has actually provided a means by which that comprehensive love for God might be kept up. That love for God might be maintained. That love for God might be promoted. That love for God is nurtured. That love does not wither or undergo decay. For Israel, verse 6, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So love with all your heart and words on your heart. Commandments on your heart, Israel. And it must be in the heart. Now, what I want to do is I want us to jump back to the New Testament and I want us to see that this is the same point that Christ is trying to make as well. Go to Luke chapter 8. In his ministry, as he was preaching and going about, even in his parables, in Luke chapter 8, verse 9, Jesus was trying to make the connection between the heart and the words of God. This is the parable on the sower sowing seed. Verse 9, when his disciples asked him what the parable meant, he said, Well, to you guys it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard, and when the devil comes and takes away the word from their what? 
hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So the word is intended by God as it goes out that it must touch the human heart. Verse 13, the ones on the rock are those when they hear the word. And you see the whole theme of hearing again. They hear it. Verse 14, when it fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. Verse 15, it is for the good soil. They are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good what? Heart. And they bear fruit. They do it with patience. Go to the end of Luke. Luke 24. It was the concern of Christ, again, what we're trying to establish here, it was the concern of Christ that the word impact the heart of his followers. Jesus has been raised from the dead and he is walking the path um, to Emmaus with two disciples. And in verse 25, he brings his rebuke because they didn't get what was going on. He says, oh, foolish ones, verse 25, and slow of what? Heart. To believe all that the prophets have spoken. In other words, you guys missed what the scriptures said. Your heart was slow to get to those words. And so beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. And what did they say as a testimony later when they finally figured out who it was? Verse 32. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and opened to us the scriptures? That's what's supposed to happen, guys. Our hearts are supposed to be burned and singed in a holy way by, by God's word, the gospel. Go to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. And we're going to take a break here real quick. So hang in there just a couple more minutes. Hebrews 4, verse 12. The Word of God is living and active. The Word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Now, that you should be very afraid of anything that is alive and that is active and moving about on its own, and it's not a beach ball. It is a very sharp knife. And it thinks on its own, and it goes and it does whatever it wants, and it's primarily not looking for your, your hangnail. It's looking for your heart. And it goes there to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. Verse 13, all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him uh, to whom we must give account. <coughs> Look at the quote from Matthew Henry. God's words must be laid up on our heart that our thoughts may be daily conversant with them and employed about them, and thereby the whole soul may be brought to abide and act under the influence and impression of them. This immediately follows upon the law of loving God with all your heart. For those that do so will lay up his word in their hearts, both as an evidence and effect of that love, and as a means to preserve and increase it. He that loves God, loves his Bible. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And guys, this is what Discipline 1 is all about. This is what it's all about. The difference between Joe Blow in the pew who attends. And a leader is that the expectation for both of them is the same. Shepherd your heart to the Word of God to meet with God there and love Him. The expectation is the same for both. But the difference between Joe Blow who just shows up and who's a part of things and the guy who's leading 
is a leader knows that he must discipline his heart for this, and he does it. Not perfectly. He does it very imperfectly. He does it with a broken heart because he knows how cold his heart gets. I mean, every morning, do you notice, or whatever it is you do your time in the world, you notice how cold your heart is? All the more that you must discipline yourself to bring it back to the furnace and get it warm again. Guys, this is what you must be. This is what the church is depending on you to become. This is what the advancement of the gospel is dependent on in churches everywhere. Men who get this and who know this and who are obedient to this and who discipline their hearts. It's a broken record coming at you again. And it will be for the rest of your days here. Come to the Word of God. Shepherd your heart to the Word of God to meet with the God of the Word. Fan your heart and love in your heart into a flame, guys. Write His Word on your heart. Um, be well disciplined in this. Okay? That's discipline one from Deuteronomy 6. We're going to take a break. We'll come back and we'll do um, the home in verses 7 to 9. And that part is much shorter. Okay? So thanks for attending. And, and before we break, any questions, comments that you guys have? You haven't said a word. Um, and that's okay. But any. Clerk? Yeah, there. Uh, I had a question just in the beginning of Deuteronomy 6. Yeah. Um, when you just speaking about like if you abide in his uh, commandments, is he going to be prosperous? I was wondering how that. I'm so well. That doesn't still hold true completely. Um, basically, can you explain that? Were uh, you thinking in a? I can't even phrase my question. <laughs> well, then I don't think it deserves an answer. <laughs> um, but you must be thinking of Deuteronomy 6.2 by keeping all the statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be long that time and that it may go well with you verse 3 you right. may multiply greatly right. yeah I mean obviously this is tied first um, and most into Israel but this was a part of his blessing I mean his promise to them that he made to Abraham was that look I'm going to make you into a mighty nation you're going to be this people there's going to be a blessing to peoples and based on all the nation's response to what I'm doing in you they'll either be blessed or they'll be cursed and what we're finding out through the Mosaic Covenant that the Mosaic Covenant comes along underneath this big promise that God made to Abraham and it's a part of it and it says now the way that this all continues to happen is if you are obedient to me so obey my commandments, and all of the promises that I've made to you will come to pass. Now what God is actually doing too, in a sense, is he's saying, he's demonstrating that it's going to come even though they don't obey. See, the whole coming of the law is not to prove that Israel can do it, and that they'll get it because they've you know, done what they need to do under God's grace, pulling them out of Egypt. His point is that he keeps his promises when we don't even obey. Because Israel blew it. In a huge, massive way. There's just always a few um, remnants who are faithful. But yeah, it's a, it's, it's a part of it. And it's, a, it's a blessing to them to do that. Um, can any of you guys think of a... Is there something in Christ's teaching that emphasizes something of the same? That there's a, a, a blessing of sorts in obedience. Pardon? 
Matthew 5. Which is? The Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. Okay. The, that's the, the, the effect of the gospel within them, being, bringing blessing. Blessed are. That's good. So there's uh, similar type principles, but it's obviously applied in a different way than it was um, to Israel. Yeah. Any other thoughts or questions? Omar. Yeah. Um, uh, with this whole, whole issue with the heart, you know, I I always thought of you know when, when you come to when you come to God, you know, there's this grace happening and your sins are forgiven because there was some something that God made into you. But then this part of love, loving God, I don't think God is. I mean, God is doing a whole lot of, lot of things in order to, for you to make him, you know, for you to love him. But it's not something that he will be working in you actively, or, I mean, how, how will this work, you know, the effect of loving God more. You know what I mean? Uh, I mean, because when you, when you come to God, there's grace and God forgives your sins, and there's this active uh, word of God uh, working in you, giving you faith, and, but... It, how does this work with love? I know he does a lot of promises and he gives you a lot of things, but how this <coughs> action works in your heart and in your life in order to make him love you. I mean, love him, I'm sorry. Um, okay, so your question, I just want to make sure I understand. You're wondering, are you looking for something like practically, what does this really look like in terms of how, how, do, you, how do you love him? Yeah, I mean, like, uh, how, how this mechanism work where you start to love him in, in, a, in a in a way that, that he deserves or he wants you to be loved, you know? I think I, I'll, I'll try to start answering that and if I'm going the wrong direction, let me know. Okay, we'll, we'll backtrack. Um, there's, there's something, when, when we come to Christ by grace, um, the new heart comes. He gives the new heart. And the new heart has all of these new desires. And one of the key, the key desire is the desire for God and desire for others. Love for Him and love for people. But those are still the two greatest commandments, two greatest desires of God in the new heart for us. Now, um, we still find that we have the residue of sin in us as well, um, which is would rather love self more than anything else. <coughs> And so now what you must do is recognize that you have these two things fighting inside. And God has arranged it in such a way, our, our nature, that the way that we grow in love is that we actually have to feed that new heart. And the way you primarily feed that new heart is with the Word of God. It must be in your heart. And if you don't bring your, those words to your heart, so that your heart can discover more than one that your heart loves, that new heart loves. And, and, and if it doesn't know how to express that love through regulations and teachings from Christ, then that love doesn't grow. And it becomes stagnant. And it becomes twisted. And it becomes works-oriented and merit-based and rather than grace-oriented. And so the, the real key of how God, how does this work? God gives us responsibility under his grace to be able to just come and keep feeding that heart. It's just like, you know, if you don't feed your son, you know what's going to happen to him. He's not going to be healthy. He's not going to be well. And and so you keep feeding your heart so that it will be healthy in Christ. Am I on the track of what you're thinking? Does anybody else have something 
that they could add to help with that? I, I just think of First um, John four nineteen. You know, we love because he first loved us, and then Second um, Corinthians five fourteen. The love of Christ controls us. Um, just to to really be able to love God, you have to first understand His love for us, and that comes through, you know, um, saturating your heart and your mind with the truth of His love. I think if you look at the, the life of David, the one that is defined as a man after God's own heart is the continual thanksgiving to God. As he interacts with God, it's, it's always in thanksgiving. So love um, needs to express itself and is even fortified through thankfulness. Okay, good. All right, well, that's good, guys. Take, let's take a short break, and we'll come back and finish up Deuteronomy 6, okay? I wanted to let you know, I was uh, at that place I was at last night where the couple renewed their vows. There were, I came across probably a half a dozen guys who were at the men's retreat uh, recently. And um, they um, were very encouraging. And in particular, again, I keep hearing from them mostly what they're telling. They're not coming up to tell me, hey, thanks, you did a great job. Again, I hear a lot about what they are saying about you guys. Um, last night, one of the guys said, I am so glad that you're, the, the men from your church were there. He said, because they brought um, an energy and a, and a passion for Christ and the gospel that... Um, we really needed to be around. And um, I just, you know, again, I wasn't something that I was necessarily expecting to see from you guys up there. Not that because I didn't think it's in you, but I just wasn't expecting that to be what, one of the things that God would showcase. I, I, sh- I should learn, I've learned from that. I expect that from now on. <laughs> 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 So it was just really cool. So praise God for His work in your life, guys. And there, there is evidence of His grace in you, um, that He is at work in you. And I just am so thankful for that. All right. We are now ready to finish up the last uh, three verses of Deuteronomy 6, verses 7 to 9. So far, the focus has been primarily on um, the individual Israelite. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. But God is not just thinking about the heart for the individual Israelite. He's thinking about the household. Um, So when you talk about discipline too, the home. In uh, In Israel, these words that were on their hearts individually were to advance beyond the individual into his household, into the lives of his children and those who were there. And he says, teach them diligently. You shall teach them diligently. (coughs) Literally, the idea in this idea of teach diligently, it's one word, it's the idea of sharpening a knife. You draw it back and forth. It's not something you do once across the stone and then you're done. But you go across, then you come back, then you go across and you come back. It's just dil- So the idea of diligently is the repetitive nature of it. 
do this over and over like you would diligently sharpen a knife. I have two quotes for you there. Frequently repeat these things to them. Try all ways of instilling them into their minds and making them pierce into their hearts, as in sharpening a knife, as it is turned first on this side, then on that. And then um, another quote. The image is that of an engraver of a monument who takes a hammer and a chisel in hand and with painstaking care etches a text into the face of a solid slab of granite. The sheer labor of such a task is daunting indeed, but once done, the message is there to stay. So God's intent for Israel is that they were to come into direct contact with the blazing center, the Lord their God, the one Lord, the one God. And out of that was to pour forth immediately heated love for God that was given to them by God. He then seeks, the Israelite does, to advance those precious words into his own heart. But he doesn't even stop there. Those precious words must now be advanced into all in his household. Uh, in verse 7, when it says, You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. Israel, upon any occasion, whether they were in their house or outside their house, they were to impress the word of God upon their children. It was supposed to be a part of that. Um, whether it was an occasion of inactivity where they were sitting, or whether it was an occasion of activity where they were moving about, um, the Word of God was to be impressed upon them. It was supposed to happen when they lie down and when they rise. Uh, at the end of the day, at the beginning of the day, the book ends on the day, on the mind of the Israelite man in the home, it was the words of God. The words of God. The words of God are the bookends on our day. Impressing the Word of God upon the heart and the mind of those in the home. Um, now look at verses 8 and 9. The Israelite uh, in covenant relationship with God was also to advance the Word even in ways beyond what he's already said. Look at verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now most commentators believe that this is just figurative, to be taken figuratively, but we know that the Jews actually did this. That they had their little phylacteries, their little boxes that had commands written on a very small brief summary, obviously, and it hung right there between their eyes. And then they also had all the tassels on their garments, but also that were on the arms that hung on the hands. And this is very, if you think about it, in a, in a society that would have been very agrarian or work, you know, manual labor-like, these words would have been constantly in the way. You would have been having to move to, and so you couldn't do your work by your hands without thinking of the Word of God. And you couldn't look out on what it was that you were doing without seeing through, in a sense, the commands of the Lord. You couldn't have something come in through you without it first, in a sense, coming through the commands of the Lord. It was to be a grid, to be a filter through which you looked out and through which you perceived everything around you. It was to impact everything you did from a handshake and a relationship the Word of God to work, the Word of God that needs to govern and be about my work as well. Um, is everywhere. Two quotes for you down there. The, the commandments were to be sovereign over individual Israelites. They were 
to serve as constraints on their hands and as mental checks upon their thinking. The purpose of using such symbolism was to connect God's law with everyday routine matters of life. Nothing was to be considered outside the scope of his authority. And in many ways, that's what Leviticus 19 is all about, too. That holiness is always within reach. Holiness is to intersect every square inch of life. The commandments were to intersect every square inch of life. Of life. Uh, they shall see by them, Spurgeon says. They shall see with them. They shall see through them. Um, verse 9. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Most commentators, again... I don't know why I think that they shouldn't do this literally, um, but I believe it. They should do this literally. The idea is you're leaving your house, and as you're heading out your gate, the last thing on your mind before you enter into your village and into your surroundings is the words of the Lord. When you come home at the end of the day, and the first thing you think of when you open the gate to come in through towards your house is, oh, the commands of the Lord. This is what Israel was to focus on. Another quote there from Merrill. The form of the commandment is in any case most significant. After ordering that the covenant commandments be worn on the person of the faithful Israelite, Moses expanded the sphere of covenant claim to the house and then to the village. In this manner, the person and his entire family and community became identified as the people of the Lord. So the word of God was to be everywhere. Um, and there was no way in God's mind that Israel could play leapfrog over their hearts. They could not play leapfrog over their homes. Um, the word of God had to be marked, had to mark this people out as a covenant people. And they could not play leapfrog. They had to get there. Now, I want to move and finish now with, with the New Testament. And I want to review back through some things um, in re- some teaching in regards to the, the, what the New Testament says on the household. So let's go... Um, and remind ourselves of some things. Let's go to Acts chapter 10. Got some great examples in Acts of the impact that one person in a household can have on the entire household. Acts chapter 10 is the, the example of Cornelius. You know, he's a, a Roman soldier, and Peter is told to go to him. And um, look at verse 33 of, of Acts 10. He says to, to Peter, he says, So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord to say. So here is a man who has assembled his entire household and even more because his heart is for God and for this message, and he's being used by God in a unique way to advance the, the gospel beyond the nation of Israel to the Gentiles. And so he's assembling all of his household. You see his heart is to impact those who are in his household with this message, this gospel message. Um, go to Acts chapter 16. And let's look at the example of Lydia. <clears throat> it's the conversion of Lydia. They're in Philippi. They go down to the river uh, to see if they might be able to speak with some there. And there were some women there. Verse 14, And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple goods. 
that she was a worshiper of God. That means that she was a proselyte. She was a Gentile who had converted to the God of Israel. And watch this. The Lord opened her what? Heart to pay attention to what was said, to the words of the gospel. And after that, she was baptized and her household as well. Now, they were either there with her at the river and heard these things, or they went back to her house and um, stayed there. And I think that's what they did. Just, it says that she wanted them to come to her house, and they, she prevailed upon them. And so it was her concern that her household come into contact with this message as well. How about Acts 16, verses uh, 22 and following? The Philippian jailer. Uh, drop down to verse 30. You know the story. Uh, the earthquake in the middle of the night Paul and Silas are in prison they're singing hymns all of the prisoners are loosed and doors are wide open and the Roman soldier would have thought if I've lost one if I've lost any, if I've lost them all I'm going to be executed by my superiors because I didn't do my job and so he pulls out his sword to do the job on himself and Peter or, or Paul stops him look at verse 30 what must I do to be saved? Pretty teachable moment. Facing life and death. <laughs> Thinking about eternity. Verse 31, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. So, Paul knows something here of what God is going to do and God's intent is not just to be after this man but also after his household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his household. So, the concern is that the Philippian jailer and his household are together. They took him that same hour of the night, washed their wounds. He was, ba- he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Um, then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. I think it's even better that they believed in God. So you see the impact of one person on a household. And guys, you need to be thinking of this. The impact that you can make on your household is more than you'll ever know. And God is sovereign how he's going to do that and to the extent and to the degree and the greatness of which he does or to the minuteness of how he does it. Um, but the point is, is position yourself by grace in humility to be a, an instrument that God can use to make an impact on a whole household. And it doesn't matter if, it's your, if you're married and you've got kids or not. Do it with your roommates. Do it wherever you live. Position yourself by grace to do that. I think it's important to take a look at Paul's teaching on the attacks that come on the home, through the home. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is kind of a a negative or an indirect way of showing why you guys need to be equipped to shepherd your homes. 2 Timothy in chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. In these last days, will be, there will come times of difficulty. Um, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. You've got to um, make sure that you are not a disobedient son to your parents. And if you have little ones or hope to have little ones someday, you need to shepherd your home because this is the nature of human beings in the last days that we are in, we are disobedient to our parents. They will be disobedient to you. Shepherd your home. Guys, shepherd your home. Um, Avoid these people who come in and are treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, 
Verse 6, For among them are those who creep into households. They creep into households. And they capture weak women who are burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Women who are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Guys, the question that's got to come out of your mind at this point is, where are the men in Ephesus in the church? Where are they? Why, why are these women burdened with sins in a way that they don't need to be? Where's the gospel in this home? Men, guard your homes with the gospel. Uh, look at Titus chapter 1. Yes, Amen. Oh, sorry, you're the other guy, Josh. <laughs> um, it's just always learning and never able to arrive at dollars of the truth. Um, mm-hmm. Who's that talking about? The, the women. women. The women. Okay. Huh. Yeah. Okay. There's a there's a curiosity factor in them. They're interested in hearing tales or whatever it is these guys are teaching, mm-hmm. but they're not coming to truth because the truth isn't being taught to them. Titus one verse ten. Right after the qualifications for elders in the church, what is said? There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, and they are especially those of the circumcision party. So stop for just a minute, guys. The the guys that he's saying you need to watch out for especially are not the pagan, idolatrous, atheistic, whatever. It's the religious. They they dress in the garb of self-righteousness or religiosity. They must be silenced. Why? Because they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Um, guys, you need to be able to guard your home. And that means that you're going to be able to, you need to be able to pick out false teaching when it comes. Which is why you need to set up for yourself the qualifications like verse 9 of an elder. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Set that up because if you know that sound doctrine, when it comes and tries to get into your home, you'll see it. You'll know it. You'll smell it. And you can combat it. You can rebuke it. You can teach it. You can bring the corrective. You can protect your family. Okay? So there's reason to shepherd your home. So with humility now, even if you're not married, you don't have kids, whatever. Even now, with humility, practice a watch care over one another in your house. And invite others to bring that watch care over you. Okay? Also, but it's important to keep a balance on the family. Christians seem to... uh, There are two extremes that we need to guard against in regards to the family. One is a massive neglect of the family. And so far, what we've been showing is that, look guys, don't neglect your family. You need to be there, you need to pay attention, but there are some who can go too far with the family and set it up as it is he's the high priest of the family and God is primarily working in this world through the family and guys, he's not. God is primarily working in the world to advance his gospel through the church and the family is extremely important but the family is a servant vessel under the gospel and under the church and within the church helping the church and dependent on the church. But never should you go so far with this household idea that you actually set up your own little household church and you're the priest and your kids are the congregation. That's not what's being asked for. And Jesus brings this out clearly. Go to Matthew chapter 10. The family can even become at some point an obstacle to the gospel. And that's when there's too much of a love for the family above the gospel. 
Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Well, that's really encouraging. And whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Guys, you need to shepherd your heart. You need to shepherd your home with this teaching here. That when Jesus comes, sometimes relationships in the household get split apart. However, you need to be a wise man and understand that and be able to, to shepherd people who are rebelling against the gospel in your home and those who are being attacked by the one who's, being, who rebelled, uh, who's rebelling against the gospel. And you need to be, be a man who can try to bring the gospel continually to that kind of a family setting. Um, it's a very challenging thing. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 57. And guys, I want you to you, you hear me rightly on this, and, and I, I don't want to misspeak and... So I want to be careful to say this all the right way. But look, there's no doubt that the household is very important. I want you to hear that. You need that to understand that. But the family is not above the gospel. And Jesus is saying here that there's a problem when the family does take a place above the gospel. If, if, if your love for your family keeps you from obedience to the gospel, there's a problem. And so you must shepherd your household in a way to put your family under the gospel. And you don't diminish your love for your family by putting the gospel above them. You're actually strengthening your love for your family because you're loving them through the gospel. Does that make sense? Luke nine fifty seven. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Well, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, let, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. He wants his father's inheritance, and the idea here is his father's not even dead yet. And Jesus said, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, proclaim the kingdom of God. Uh, so in other words, look, you've got an, an attitude towards your father that's hindering you from the kingdom of God. Don't let that happen. Verse 61, yet another said, I'll follow you, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Same idea. And then you have the examples of Jesus in Matthew 12 and in Mark 3 and in Luke 8 where um, the context is Jesus is, there's a concern in his mother and his brothers that he's lost it because they keep ministering all day long and they don't even eat. And they're just, it's just crazy. I mean, they never, the reason they thought he was crazy is they've never seen anything like this in Galilee. Never. And so they come to get him, to take him away and save him from himself because he's lost it. And what is his point? What does he say when he finds out, hey, your mother and your brother are outside and they're looking for you. What does he say? What family does he point to? His nuclear family? The family that he is making in the kingdom of God, which is going to express itself in the church. And so even Jesus modeled this balance well. Did Jesus ever dishonor his mom? No. Did he speak frankly with his mom? Oh, yeah. He did. Very much so. But whenever she put herself in a position where she was potentially an obstacle to his work of redemption, 
he moved her out of the way and he did his work of redemption. So guys, just the point is, let's hold your household in its proper place. It has a proper place. It's not too high and it can't be too low. It's got to be just right in the gospel. And you need to be wise about that and shepherd your life with that, okay? And your home with that. Just by mentioning Ephesians 5, guys, if you want to be married, if you are married, leading a wife requires a a strong grasp on the gospel and on the atonement of Jesus Christ. Because you are called to love her, not just any old way, not in the way you think, but you're required to love her one way, and that is to love her as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for her, right? In his death on the cross. And so you need to understand that. One of the main studies, so that you're taking good care of your family, so that you're taking good care of your household, one of the first studies needs to be the atonement of Jesus Christ over and over and over because you want to look at that love, you want to look at that self-giving love, you want to look at that sacrifice because it is inseparable to what God has called you to be as a husband. If you want to be married today, or someday, you may even want to be married today, um, but if you want to be married someday, guys, you need to put the atonement of Jesus Christ at the front of your study and your interest because when God, if he brings you to a woman to love her, he only has one kind of love in mind for you to show her. And you must be a good student of the gospel, of the cross, of the atonement. Yes? Um, Maybe this isn't the right place to answer this, but in my years of marriage, almost 29 now, I know that I'm supposed to love Chris as Christ loves the church. And... uh, that's where it seems to stop. It, it's like, okay, how does that play out practically? And I think I know some answers to that. But it's real easy to say you're supposed to love your Christ, love your wife like Christ, and love the church. But to go from the cross to a, a day-to-day thing is not necessarily so easy. It's easy to say that, but it's not easy to know what to do. Yeah, so sometimes we need to get really Does anybody have some some really good basic ideas off the start? I think it'd be good to give some brainstorm of some. And by the way, I, I'm not really excited about marriage books because they make me feel guilty. Uh, <laughs> why do you use that? Why, why do that when you have the Bible? So, yeah. Any ideas on, on what, what what's, what's practical? What are, what are a couple practical expressions? I, I, I think uh, this from him, twenty years January. So uh, I, I think a lot of it is is do I how good you know like, am I denying myself? Am I uh, am I giving myself to her in, in a way that's sacrificial? Um, and that could be as simple as when I come home from work, um, have I prepared my heart when I walk in the door? that I'm going to be thinking about her needs and what she has encountered today. Um, and when I, you know, because I want my time. Like, I've been working all day, I want my time. But uh, I'm, I'm working when I get home. My, my work is, is to be that person that she needs me to be. That's easier said than done. But uh, that's kind of... That's a good way to apply self-denial. Well, I'll be 31 years on Monday. Well, two days. So I'm saying that doesn't qualify me to be more knowledgeable, but to have messed up more. 
<laughs> See guys, here's what not to do. Go ahead. <laughs> I think that's what you're saying. I say that. Uh, I think even going back to what you had mentioned, and my interpretation would be like lording my opinion over the household, and, and kind of setting it up like my domain and in taking an incorrect knowledge or incorrect information or even out of context information from maybe what a pastor said or what I thought scripture said and in that um, just making it kind of a strict little microcosm <coughs> of what, what's around me and, and I, I found uh, more more recently, and more recently could be quite a few years back, when maybe almost giving up on that and just going to the Lord in prayer. And I think it's um, maybe, I, I've heard it when uh, we've heard examples of, say, a wife whose husband is a non-believer and how she to win him take that the reverse way and not that my wife is an unbeliever but she is a believer and she wants me to do all these things and lead the family but not in a domineering fashion but just going to God <coughs> leading in a way where to use one of your quotes God's umbrella of grace is over that over the whole thing and that I, I think in that and, and certainly not that I have it all together at all, but then our wives will want to follow when we're leading under the umbrella of God's grace and in a prayerful, um, soft, gentle. That's good. Tom. I, I think that the picture of the church is uh, a picture of God's grace, and I think uh, practical application of God's grace in the home is being very fast to confess your sin and very fast to forgive. And part of the forgiving is to overlook as well. Yeah, I, Tom, I also think of <clears throat> one of the things that you say a lot to married guys when you meet with them I've heard you say it over and over you know, one of the ways practical ways you show just your wife is love like that is by uh, love in general to your wife is asking her what she's what she's praying for do you know what your wife is praying for do you are you connected with what the spiritual concerns are of your wife you, you guys know how we are we can just get going and she becomes just like everything else that we're just trying to get done and work on and and um, work through and she can get neglected even though you see her every day and you're in her presence you can show real love by just saying having those conversations carving out time um, saying well, what are you what's, what's on your mind with the kids these days what, what, are you, what are you saying and how are you praying I, I want to be in tune with what you're seeing and here's what I'm seeing um so, yeah, we, we need to work on generating a good list. So, Ken, I think you've got a great assignment in front of you. 
and we will all join you in it to, to work on that some more. John? Um, for those of us who are not married yet. Yes. Um, We're not talking about you, so we'll just... <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah, no. Um, how can we, I guess, we'll, most of us will probably leave families one day. How can we um, begin to... <laughs> How can we begin to um, incorporate these types of things, even in our dating relationships, well, um, you know, right now? So. That's good. Why don't we work on that for answering that question um, more so? Okay. Smith, <laughs> you have something new on your mind. Yeah, I think every man in this room would take a bullet for his wife or his future wife without a thought. Um, how many of us would take out the trash with the same velocity and intensity, intentionality, and, and really where the, or, or pick anything that's distasteful or, or uncomfortable to us, the selfless sacrificial thing. Um, men are just flat lazy when it comes to leading and caring spiritually. Um, and harder than taking out the trash when you don't want to is leading your wife to love God more, to wash her with the Word, which is what Christ came to do. Not just to lay down His life in our place, but also to prepare us for sin. And our task is to one day hand our bride to her true bridegroom. And, uh, and we're just straight lazy. And so the way that, that we can love our wives as Christ loved the church is to pursue her for the glory of God under Christ's likeness. Yeah, we just don't do that well. Yeah. And that can be applied very easily to a dating relationship. Simple service. I think this is sacrifice. There's a word that is part of my life that it has to exhibit. And then that's what can happen when we're so active outside the home. We get in the long way. We say it's my castle. Yeah. Our wives should have the best of our time and attention and discipleship and care and prayer for uh, spiritual attention. That's and they usually good. get the least, and we can be really, really proud. Leftovers, yeah. That's good. Let's do a couple more real quick here. Derek and then Tyler. Uh, I was just curious is there ever a danger of. Um, um, you're about married. Uh, close to uh, is there ever going to be like a danger? Of, I hate to say using being like over spiritual with the family or with the household or with your wife, but I guess that's the only, only thing I can think of. Like it's the only thing that you talk about all the time. Is there ever a danger for you to be overboard, almost like uh, like all the time you're trying to correct, you're trying to, be, you're trying to uh, always want to pray, always want to read the scriptures, uh, but not spend time outside of that. Just yeah, there can be abuses like that and perversions of that, but I don't want I don't want anybody to, to walk away too thinking that. Well, you need to give fifty percent of your time to spiritual conversations and fifty percent of your time to non-spiritual conversations because that's not true. It's all spiritual. Everything is viewed through the lens of the gospel. That, but that doesn't mean that you should necessarily constantly be rebuking, exhorting to stop playing and let's pray, and turn that off and let's pray. And, you know, let's not, let's eat an hour later because we're going to study. You know, you, you, you there, there's a balance of, of just 
basic, simple life in Christ. All of life is in Christ. So yes, all of it is spiritual. All of it is spiritual discussion. But that doesn't necessarily need to conjure up ideas of, of perversions of that. Like, you're never talking about football. You're never talking, you're never playing with your kids. You play catch with your kids because it's an opportunity to just be a Christian doing it and enjoying each other in the gospel and what God has blessed you with. And so, yeah, you want to have lots of fun. You'll be able to do a lot of things in Christ with your family, with your wife. But you be careful that it doesn't look like it's a, a seminary classroom. One, other thing. One thing that conversation we had years back was just about pointing out evidence of God's grace. In, in her life as you see it happening whether it's how she's interacting with the kids or how she reacted in this situation putting those things out to her and then when it's time for you to make a decision for something that she may not agree with right away how, how much easier is it for her to be like when you say okay honey I just, I just need you to go with me on this this is what the decision that we've made how much easier for, is it for her to say you know what okay because you've constantly been Shifting her in that in that aspect of her heart and pointing those things out to her daily, weekly, whatever. It's good. Yeah, you need to be a, a big encourager all the time. Uh, two last points where we're not going to look at it for sake of time and for sake of distraction. Um, <laughs> Sorry, we were listening to that. Yes. Listen to me. Um, New Testament model for marriage, a good household is uh, an example of Aquila and Priscilla. How they were gospel-centered. They were missionaries, yes. But they they uh, are a good model to set up. Take a look at that. And then also look at the qualifications, discipline for, and, and notice the uh, qualifications that include the household. Husband of one wife, you know, one woman man, and you're managing your own household well, and your children are faithful under your leadership, and even the qualification of being hospitable. That means your home is a, a, a platform for, for a gospel ministry for people. And um, so you want to take a look at those, okay? Now, what I want to do is let us have just a, a, a little bit of time before we finish, and we'll break up into small groups and we'll leave this room and uh, go out. When we're done, though, the small groups will need to come back in here quietly. Some of us, if we can, and just put the tables or the chairs back around the table. And if we can just kind of carry the stuff that's on the counter over to the office, that would be a great help. I'll just see a couple of guys to help with that at 9 o'clock. But if they're still going in there, we want to be in here really quiet. Um, your homework. You've got the yellow sheet that we're going to spend some time talking about today when we break up into small groups a little bit and just talk. And then you have, what color is the sheet today? Uh, that's your homework for the 22nd. And that one primarily focuses on the home. Okay? And please don't, don't fall short in that assignment. Ask the people in your home the questions there. You'll be blessed by it. It may be hard, but you'll be blessed. It'll help you. It'll help you a bunch, okay?